for each of us we are challenged to find our own particular way of coming face to face with the truth of our bodies. And as I said before, as you all know, here, particularly in the West, the fact and the reality of death is something that our society has protected us from so skillfully and so abundantly. If we'd lived in the time of the Buddha, he had many things he used to do. He used to send the nuns and monks off to the charnel ground, which are the places where they took dead bodies. And Sometimes the bodies are burnt in these charnel grounds. If people have sufficient family money, then the body is placed there and it is set alight and uh, the mourners circumnavigate the burning body. And um, people get to witness uh, the, the ultimate fate of the body. If there isn't enough money, apparently, what happens is the body is just left there and the body is um, food for the creatures of the forest and woods, uh, uh, providing sustenance. And the Buddha used to send the nuns and monks into the charnel grounds, again, not to scare the living daylight out of them, but to shake them to the point where they irrevocably realize for themselves that the fate that they see before them is the fate that awaits them also, thereby undermining any illusion that death is something that any of us can be protected from. There are... um, He gave these practices, he said, for nine specific reasons, and I'd like to mention them, they're worth reflecting on. He said that the advantages of contemplating a dead body in the way that happens in Asia now is that we develop a true awareness of death. He said we live diligently, the second advantage. He said we open to the truth of the decaying body and the deteriorating body. Greed and desire diminish in the context of that truth. We observe the truth of the body. We abandon the vanity of health. A sense of urgency arises. We vanquish fear and dread and we incline towards the simplicity of living. I don't think I'm going to anymore. One of the most eloquent ways in which the Buddha talked about death or demonstrated death was he gave a sermon. It's called the, the Sermon on the Mount. And gathered around him were his nuns and monks. And apparently the mind of a Buddha is is so all-encompassing and so completely skillful that he was able to know exactly the teaching that would help each of the people whose lives he was a part of. And so he was able to offer just the teaching that they needed. And one of the teachings he gave, he was sat and everybody was sitting around him and he leant forward and took a flower and he just held the flower 
and he held the flower for hours and hours. And sitting somewhere before him was a monk who suddenly his face burst into a radiance and he received the teaching as the uh, flower wilted and died and the petals fell off. The teaching of impermanence had really gripped and seized his spirit and heart and of course as all those stories go he was fully enlightened. There's another story that I love a lot. It's sort of a teaching parable, one of the fables. It's a story of Kisa Gotani. And apparently what happened was this woman had uh, gave birth to a young child. He was a young boy and he was the delight of his family and especially his parent-in-laws. Apparently she had trouble with her mother and father-in-law. But when she gave birth to this child, she was embraced into their family. And he was an active, healthy child. And one day, playing outside, he fell, was injured, and he died. And her grief was inconsolable. She was thrown out of the family, and she was heartbroken. And she went to the Buddha and said, please, please, bring my child back to life. And the Buddha said, Sure. He said, I'll do that. He said, I only have one favor to ask before I do that. He said, go into the town and find a household where death has not occurred. And from that household, bring me just one single mustard seed. He said, and I will return your child to you alive and well and healthy. And so she ran off and said, of course I'll do that. And she went and she came to the first house and she said, please, you know, could I have a single mustard seed? And I said, of course you can. And gave it to her and said, oh, and she said, you know, I just want to confirm that there's been no death in this household. And they said, well, no, actually, you know, grandmother died last week and a cousin of ours died only yesterday. And she went to another house, of course, and was told that an infant had died in, in childbirth and that an uncle uh, was of gasping his last breath and so she went around from house to house until eventually she realized that she wasn't going to find one and according to the text it says slowly it dawned upon her and she understood no village law is this no city law no law for this clan or for that alone for the whole world I and for the gods in heaven this is the law all is impermanent. She returned to the Buddha who quietly inquired about her mission. Venerable one, I have seen, she said, that all things that are born will surely die. Children, grandmothers, sheep, trees, perhaps even the stars above us. Nothing is exempt. I have let go and accepted the death of my child. I'd like to do now until we break for tea is invite you once again to spend a time as we did this morning with another of the reflections that I I introduced then and then at tea time 
these will be in the front, available for anyone who would like them. Put them in the front. Thank you. So if you could, again, just take a posture that will be comfortable for you for the next while. I'd like to select a reflection from that category, the second one, the uncertainty of the time of death. Human life expectancy is uncertain. My life expectancy is uncertain. If you could just take up that thought in quiet in this safe, sacred space that we together have created. I remind you once again to continue to breathe deeply. My life expectancy is uncertain. My life expectancy is uncertain. Bringing the thought inside Shifting, if need be, to the experience of breathing as a tool to still the mind, the attention, bring some stability to this reflection, using the thought skillfully. My life expectancy is uncertain. unknown, no guarantees, unsure. My life is uncertain.
again being creative, using this reflection in a way that feels true for you. You may want to have a conversation with yourself. Speculate, draw on the tapestry of your life. Bring images, objects, people. My life is uncertain. breathing. Life is uncertain. wonders gently returning to the thought, my life is uncertain. Once again, if a feeling, if an emotion, if there's a tone that has arisen, just being with that feeling, Allow that feeling to saturate your heart, your mind, your body, just soaking into the experience of feeling my life is uncertain, always. My life is uncertain. And now bringing in one further additional reflection, intimately related. Not even my own body can help me in the end.
my body cannot tell me. Visualize your body not being able to help you. If it feels appropriate, you may want to visualize your body. Step back and see that your body, in the end, is not able to help you. Breathing. My body cannot help me. In the end. feeling that arose, the climate, the inner climate that is there right now in this moment, and resting there. Allowing the truth to be there. My body cannot help me in the end. to allow your attention to rest in the heart center, this middle of the chest. Just be with whatever feeling or absence of feeling there might be there in your great heart now. My life is uncertain. My body 
cannot help me in the end. In this quiet and in this silence, I will slowly read all nine of these reflections. May they be seeds that will ripen whenever and if ever necessary. Everyone has to die. Our lifespan is decreasing continuously. Keep breathing. The amount of time spent in our life to develop the mind and heart is very small. amount of time spent in our life to develop the mind and heart is very small. Human life expectancy is uncertain. That's the fourth one. My life is uncertain. There are many, many causes of death. The human body is so fragile. My body is so fragile. Number six. Keep breathing. Our possessions and enjoyments cannot help in the end. Number eight, our loved ones cannot help us. the final one, even our own body cannot help us in the end. from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall you see the fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream.
once again this is an opportunity to hear from one another. Once again I'd like to ask if I might use the gong as a way of acknowledging anything that is said and following what is said with a period of quiet. I also would like to acknowledge that our time is drawing to an end. It's going on four o'clock and at five o'clock we will end on time. And so this next period will probably be one of the final opportunities that we have to hear from one another. So it feels important to acknowledge that also.
So these reflections are sort of crystallized for me in a very succinct way. Um, these awarenesses that were coming up as I watched my father die, as I saw my friends in the tumor. Father's name. to the group, I'm sure there's a response here. I think that's just a fascinating concept because I hear a lot of people um, responding to death as this death is okay and that one of to this one is too soon. And, and I always think there's really no different, you know, difference in dying from a bullet, you know, as dying from a tumor, you know, dying when your time is up, your time is uncertain, and it truly is an act of nature, no matter who does it, no matter what does it, you know, it's just that your time is up, and uh, uh, that's always how I, I think of anybody dying at any time, it's just that, that time is up, and just in the meditation of your time, it's uncertain, when you're going to die, how you're going to die, with whom you're going to die, why, you know, death is just so pure to me in that way. It's just, 
doesn't matter. Um, it's not that, that it's just what it is. You know. I'm on the same line as the line I just read. And I wish I could fully accept that line from the recent trans uh, rendition of the Tao by Ursula Gould. It says, whenever you die, you live long enough. And I wish I could accept that. <laughs> and if we're truly not this body, then we don't really die, do we? So it's not like not our time because we cannot really die. It's like who the body you knew is gone, but what was it over there for? Mm-hmm. I actually think there may be a difference. Dying from a sudden a bullet wound or a rape of blood, like it is to dying at home surrounded by loved ones and um, complete comfort. I imagine something different happens after, potentially. Because my body is very fast and then shuffling away, and I don't know. But I don't think there might be a difference, and certainly different than the wake of such a different death. You know, like all deaths are not created equal. Um, although it's true that with uncertain, there's no judgment in what I'm saying that one's better than another. But I think there are differences. I um, was just with someone yesterday who lost uh, lost his dog, uh, a dog that was very loyal to him, um, to, to a car accident, a car ran him over, and we started talking about dying yesterday, which I didn't even really realize until today how much I was talking about death yesterday. It was interesting, but um, the context really came out. I was talking about a pet that had died, who I was really close to. And whether this pet was actually in pain or not, and we started conveying our different experiences about our observances of death. And I was reflecting on what I had gone through previously, where, you know, in my own illness, where I got to this place where all of a sudden I could see someone looking in at me and knowing that they weren't really seeing the truth in some way. You know, they were looking at me like he lost weight and all this fear and this illusion that was surrounding, whether it was violence, you know, whatever that they were looking at. And I was thinking, but I'm really peaceful inside. And and even my own my own voice was still speaking the language of um, confusion about it. You know, and, and what's happening, what's happening, what's happening. But then there was also this piece of like, this is so okay. And I'm getting so many gifts from this. And there wasn't, um, it, it ties into something that happened today in this whole day for me where, you know, in the last, can you just read the last phrase that you were reading? Something that I'm Oh, the nine? Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, our own body cannot help. The one before that was, our loved one cannot help, our possessions and enjoyments can't help. Um, 
this morning when you were reading the first one, I was in, it wasn't really a conflict, but I was seeing that, you know, when I keep thinking our life is leaving or when people talk about death and what my experience is worse, like the life isn't leaving, the life is getting bigger. The life is getting bigger, so what, what is really leaving? Because it's not me. You know, I'm getting bigger. <laughs> and everything's getting brighter. And so that paradox was very clear today. Yeah. That it's, you know, something, when, when you were speaking, you know, when I heard you speak in the spring at CIMC about the, black, the blackness and where you were going and just getting closer to that, I mean, that's the illusion of the whole thing for me, and that death really is that it's such a loving, I mean, I've seen that again today too, it's, it's, it's loving, it's embracing, it's, it's, it's holding, it's, it's, for me it's like it's, it's holding me and showing me a death that, I don't know, I mean, it's bringing me closer to life that, that my conception of life has in some ways. Is it kind of like, like I experience it, that the fear paints a terrible picture of what lies ahead and then the brushstrokes of our imagination terrify us and so we live in this place that is terrifying of our own creation and then I think in our willingness to come face to face with what it is that we've created um, births a kind of love that as you say I mean as the illusion of death begins to disintegrate what in my experience is released and actually this morning when I was thinking about that story you know that, that I told this morning about that black tunnel and the light that it's not that that light is outside of me and that I have found it not at all it's about that is that is the love that is there and so the, the re-experiencing and the remembering of that love, long forgotten, um, makes the fear of death pale in comparison. And I think that, is that what you say? Yeah. 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 And that's, that's what was amazing. When, even when, when I was able to tell someone this winter, when I came back from the doctor and, and my blood tests were off and I had been working, you know, working so hard to change my health and my blood tests were worse than they were a year ago, you know, and I was so struck and shocked by that and, and realizing that it's almost like I was thinking, well, I, I don't know what else to do. You know, I, I don't know what else to do here. And I knew that I was dying in that sense. And when I went to someone, I told them that. And it was like, I, when I said this morning that I needed to say that, that was like the greatest freedom for me to just, to be able to just say that I'm dying. Like it was almost like a proclamation and there was a lot of fear around it in some ways. But, but to just say that, and to have it be, you know, thrown back in me and a relationship broke up and all this stuff happened because there's so much fear around it. And then to see my rea reaction to that and that was another, you know, tail spinning on my face. And um, that what I said this morning too about just being afraid of, there was obviously something I needed to see. Like I needed to say that. I needed to be that close to it. Mm that that was where my freedom was and it was almost like I, I didn't know how that was that was my fear that was my construction of my vision around it you know that i came full face with and then and then it was became almost um comical in a way 
as the months went on. And, and it's, it's more of a spirit around that now, where it's, it's more, you know, um, when I heard you speak in the spring and you had mentioned something, you mentioned the next day, what had gone on for you years before you had been diagnosed. And there's the breakdown of, of all these different things. And I remember when I sat in, in the spring, this fear that went running through my body because I thought, is that, is that what's happening now? Is that what's happening with me now? And, and then I told a friend that what grace it was that I had seen you first throughout that whole spring again this spring and just was able to say, well, so what? Hmm. You know, so what if, if two or three years or four years from now that's what happened? Like there wasn't, it almost got to the place where it didn't matter what, whether I had cancer, whether I had whatever. It's like I had gone through so much fear I just couldn't feel it anymore. Hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't be scared about that anymore. And the, you know, the, the final three reflections, the fact that, you know, they, as I said this morning, they are categorized into three sections. And the final one is the fact that only insight into the Dharma, insight into the truth, can help us at the time of death seems to be exactly what you're saying. It's like we can have these experiences and whether they can translate into wisdom and understanding and therefore liberation is dependent on, you know, how, how, um, what the quality and state of mind is. I mean, that story, you know, that I told this morning, you know, in the hospital on those apricot colored rose petals, <laughs> is um, I mean it, it has a lot of meaning for me in different ways and one of the meanings is how imperative it is that in this moment I cultivate a mind that is able to be as present as possible with what's going on and so you know in that story you know with such a graphic personal example of how treacherous it is to have a mind that is, um, you know, untamed. You know, I mean, who could think that in the middle of such a sacred sort of event that, you know, I should get in there with my sort of dilettantish mind and start, you know, oh, cool, this is so great. You know. <laughs> sort of embarrassing. I'm also aware that we haven't fully respond to your statement. And I'd like to get back to that, if I may, after ringing the gong. The statement was that you were in a situation where people were assassinated and feels like their death was untimely and that that is a stumbling point for you in terms of relating to the truth of what happened. And once again, I open that statement. Um, this, is, this is a comment on that. Yeah. Um, it's also a, a comment on other things that have been happening today. Um, I think it's easier for me to, to 
to take those reflections, the non-reflections, and to, um, or it's valuable to me, to apply them to all the, the deaths that happen every day, um, that, that, that happen all their lives, like the breathing. And all the things that we wish could be different, um, they might be different. That um, we get to practice all time. All the things that we wish could be different, um, they might be different. That um, we get to practice all time. And so much of it feels unfair. I think that's so helpful because my response is I want to say to you, you're feeling a lot and like honor that. You don't, you know, I was going to ask you not to speak for a moment and just feel the tenderness that you were feeling. And in a way, that's what I wanted to say also. It's like, you know, there is grieving and there's heartbreak there and sometimes it's the grieving that uh, can, can, can stand somewhat in the way of, of a deeper acceptance of what happened and that we cannot move beyond the, or, or, or we cannot move to the acceptance by sidestepping the grieving and so you know, again, to, to honor, you know, that it is still a very tender place. You know, I think we can sometimes hoodwink ourselves by getting the, the relative confused with the absolute. You know, on one level we can say, you know, as you said, which is very true, that who is it that's dying? On the other level, you know, a, you know relatively, a friend has died, has disappeared, has suffered, and you're heartbroken. And irrespective of the nature of reality, your heart is broken. And to, and to gift yourself with all the mercy and tenderness and patience that you need in order to feel the impact of that feels imperative. I mean, it feels like that is, that is the heart of compassion. And so there's nowhere that, if I may be so bold as to say this, there's nowhere that you need to be other than exactly where you are, you know, and, and how wonderful that you feel that much, you know, and that these people meant that much to you. You know, people say to me, it's not unfair, it's not fair that you have AIDS, and I've said it's not fair that I should have lost over 60 friends to this virus. And my mother said to me this time, she said, you, she's, at 77, she said, you've lost more friends than I have, and I'm 77. It doesn't seem fair, you know, and it shakes me, you know, that statement, and, you know, it hits me in all sorts of different places. Sometimes it feels sort of fine, what I'm dealing with, it's much easier with myself than to wish it on someone else to say it's fine that it happened to them, I can't do that, you know. But uh, it's, it's just so tender, you know, and maybe when we fully enlighten, we can see it from a perspective that can 
enable us to have a universal understanding of a situation like that? I don't know. I think the important thing is that we be willing to live our lives vulnerably and tenderly. And I think that's a courageous commitment in a world that is so harsh and so violent. it is a somewhat self-serving question but it's also something that I think I pray may be useful was any part of what I said this afternoon um, difficult uncomfortable, objectionable in terms of speaking about the body about my experience at the monastery difficult but not objectionable. Difficult only in that it was jarring and exactly what I needed to um, open more. Um, and it just made me think about images of um, the Holocaust and shows on television where we see people from the Holocaust or from wars that with bodies that just seem disembodied and they're not real anymore and it's too easy to get a distance from that on the television um, and there needs to be more opportunity to get more intimate with with that kind of um, image um, and I find there's not a lot of opportunity for that in everyday life so you are um, 
rendition of it was much more alive. Um, and it, it just, it made me just think of this little um, experience I had yesterday that stopped at a red light where I often find at some moment when things can, learning can take place if I'm open to it. And, and there was a woman who somehow she, I felt she looked like me, but she was like 30 years older. And I, so I was projecting myself into this woman. And she was, she couldn't walk across the street by herself and somebody was helping her and she was in enormous pain. And I found myself feeling, no, I'm, that's not going to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to me. And I, I was pushing that away. Um, and so your, your opening this up today helped me to kind of come back from pushing that away to be more open to it and realizing, yes, that will happen to me. And it'll be all right. The, whatever will help me through that when that happens. And I don't have to pull back. So the difficult but not objection. Very helpful. said that sort of set me reeling because those bigger examples usually don't uh, reach me. I kind of close off a little bit when I think of a bad hand or a body sawed in half or um, I went to an Auschwitz thing where people had gone there for some convocation and they were telling stories about piles of baby shoes and hair and I could just feel myself closing down and it was the example that they gave of an, um, an architectural model that was there, that architectural firms had bid on the job of how to make the most efficient chambers where they walk in easily and the edges would come And that was the thing that got me more than the piles of hair. And today it was when you said slum. I don't know why, I just thought, slum? Am I full of slum? Is my daughter full of slum? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> well, I would like to invite you to a abbreviated cup of tea because there are some some things that I think would be just great to do before we close and that's going to be in 40 minutes so if you can actually delay a full cup of tea until five o'clock and if you just would like to stretch um, and be back here in five minutes then we'll bring our day to an end together thank you in this moment of gratitude I would like to thank is it Debbie yeah. who is not here for the food for Chris for all the preparation and work that's gone into making this day absolutely smooth and easy and um, it's really made it a joy to get ready and to and to come here it's been a great delight.
and there are people, some of whom you may know and not know, also whose faces are not here today, uh, Andy and Musan, others whom I've not met. They're all a part of what's made this day possible. I'd like to really tribute them with um, giving us the opportunity to be here with a considerable amount of work and dedication. I feel drawn to do something just that just came to me now to just give the next 10 minutes to open. You know, if, if anybody needs to say anything, not necessarily along the lines of appreciation, but uh, in, in closing, and then we'll sort of formally close. But I just feel like I don't want to go into a closing right away without just opening if there's anything that needs to be said, let me put it that way, uh, before we bring our day to a close together. Yes. I heard you speaking about Hampton a few years ago. And you mentioned then that you recently started to become involved in Christian faith. And I'm really interested in how you are able to um, bring those two rather diametrically different faiths together mm. and how they've been resistant to One of the great happinesses of the last years has been a reconnection with the teachings of Christ. And it's been on a level and in a way that's not felt in any way that the two are diametrically opposed to one another. I feel like, for me, the essence of his teaching, as I understand it through, um, you know, through the Bible in most parts and certainly through the Gnostic Gospels, um, you know, is one of immense love. And it's, it's really the love of, of Christ and in his teaching that is really drawing me closer and closer. The, the symbol of the crucifix was really what got me back into church. I just felt very drawn to the crucifix several years ago. And there's something about the triumph over the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the promise in that that um, fires my heart to such an extent that most Sundays, today not being one of course, I find myself in church taking the Eucharist again, which I never thought I ever would do. And, you know, when the Eucharist is given and it's said, you know, take eat this, this is my body, drink this, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. What that means to me, or what that speaks in me, is uh, remember that I am not this body, that I have triumphed over this body. And it's not that I am putting down the body in any way, that it's just see the truth, that, you know, um, I mean, in the terminology of Christianity, he's the son of God. We're all children of God. 
in that context and that we are so much more than just a body and his triumph over that in, in his resurrection and his ascension um, just uh, fills me with such joy and promise and um, while there are parts of the Christian teaching that I do at times stumble over, there are as many parts in the Buddhist teaching that I stumble over. I mean, a large part of the book, not a large part, but a part of the book that I haven't talked about, which I sort of edited out today, was the position of women, you know, in the unfolding of the Buddhist uh, tradition over the last two and a half thousand years. And I speak a lot about my experience at the monastery and the nuns. It was very difficult. It's one of the reasons why I left the monastery was the disparity between the way the monks and the nuns were treated. And so it seems to be more and more that I'm drawn just to places where there is an experience of authentic love. And um, there's a way, and in the course of miracles, you know, which, um, you know, I feel there's a, a very pure teaching of love there too. And for me personally, and this is not an indictment of, the, of Buddhism at all, um, it's just there's a kind of a, a succulence about the way that love is celebrated in the Episcopal Church where I go in Northampton that I just love. I just love. It's so warm. It's so... You know, the singing, the, the candles, the, the children, you know, it's like I, I need it, you know, it's a thirst. And so I go, and it just feels like it's not me and them, it's just another place where there is love. And so that's where I need to be. And it feels like such a relief, because I left Christianity when I found Buddhism, and I was now Buddhist and not a Christian, and, you know, and I feel like the Dharma has brought me back to a place where... I can include them both. Thank you for asking that question. I'd like to move on, if I may, unless there's anything Now I'm just really t talking from with a hip or whatever. Um, in closing, the most important thing to affirm personally feels um, is this experience of, of of love. You know, in in the gravest sense, the the, the re-experiencing. Of a, of a kind of love that I never thought would be possible in my life. And there are aspects of my life that I haven't shared today. Those of you that have read my book are familiar with the fact that I was severely sexually abused as an infant, actually, my first months, and uh, as a young boy at a boarding school in South Africa. And in some ways, that was a kind of death in life for me that feels in many ways far more of a triumph than coexisting with this virus in some ways. And so um, the experience of love in the context of the fire of having entered what it has meant to have been treated 
in that way as an infant and as a young boy has deepened my refuge in the Dharma to a degree today where it feels absolutely unshakable. I have such gratitude and so when I say to Chris, you know, how grateful I am to have the opportunity to be here, it really comes from the deepest place in my heart, you know, it feels like such a privilege to be able to share this teaching because it's a teaching that I cannot bow deeply enough to. It has worked in my life, it has given me an experience of love where it could have quite easily have been a life that it could have been defined by a kind of death that could have endured until the day I died. And I'd like to affirm the triumph of these teachings, not the personal triumph, but the triumph of these teachings as they are available in the world by, by sharing with you the prologue to my book. It came to me a while ago and I, I would like to share it with you in closing. And following this, we'll um, do a loving-kindness meditation uh, before ending. For as long as I can remember, each evening, my mother joined me at my bedside and we said our goodnight prayer together. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Pity my simplicity suffer me to come to thee. She would then pull the curtains closed, kiss me goodnight on the lips, and shut my bedroom door. For a few wonderful nights every month, the light fell brightly through my bedroom window, jolting me awake and summoning me from my sleep. Not even the curtains could keep that light from reaching me. If the heavy African storm clouds did not hang thick, dark and low across the night sky, the light would call me outside once again. Quietly I'd slip down from my bed and, in my pyjamas, I'd cross the room to the door. In the brightness I would stretch up to the handle and slowly pull it down, careful to make no noise whatsoever. If an owl hooted or the crickets were particularly noisy down by the nearby stream, I would feel a little bolder as I slipped into the passageway. I always knew if my father was asleep. His grumpy snoring reverberated to every corner of the house. <laughs> if my mother's bed did not creak or groan, I was safe and quietly crept down the long passageway, turned right and came to the front door of the house. Here I had to be careful. Reaching up once more, I'd grab the key and slowly turn it in the lock. The click of the latch always seemed so loud. Once my mother awoke at this point and hid behind the living room, and I hid behind the living room chair when her springs creaked and she arose from her bed. I held my breath as she walked down the passageway to investigate the sound that had disturbed her. Fortunately, she did not notice my open bedroom door and soon returned to sleep. Now was the exciting part. Again I would stretch up, grab the handle and pull it down. The heavy door silently opened before me and I glimpsed the wonderland that beckoned me outside. Bright silvery moonbeams reached down to me as I walked along the garden path to the open grass lawn below the house. Every dewdrop sparkled and laughed in the light. 
The stars twinkled across the heavens and the great round kind moon smiled down at me and held me safely in his lovely light. I was back, safe, alone and filled once more with that joy of being again in the happiest place on earth. When the magnolias were in bloom, their fragrance hung heavily in the air. The huge flowers hung like colossal clouds on the branches above my head. The snow lilies danced in the moonlight and I would lie down on the grass beside the tiny flowers and look up into their white hearts and see the stars above me through their liquid petals. But my favorite moment was when the great old cactus beside the front door burst into bloom one night a year when the moon was big and round in the sky. Huge long white trumpet flowers reached skyward towards heaven as they opened their petals to drink the moonbeams for a single night. I would run to every corner of the garden and dance and spin in delight and happiness. No one could hurt me here. No one could interrupt me. All else fell away save the love and the perfect joy I felt. Me and the moonlight, alone for now in the fragrant, silvery air of the early African morning. At some point the light stopped calling me and my bedroom door remained closed all night. Soon the moonbeams fell alone on the cactus flowers and the next day I would see the sad, sodden, droopy blossoms hanging limply from the prickly leaves. Perhaps the clouds moved in and did not leave, but I never again saw the midnight snowdrops, neither did I drink the magnolias in the light that once held me so tenderly and in which I always felt completely safe and happy. Perhaps it was the arguments about his drinking that did it, or could I way back then have felt the fear abroad in the land beyond my little sacred and secret midnight garden? Certainly my dispatch to boarding school far from home severed completely the geographic cord to my magic life in the perfect moonlight. And I'm sure the loneliness of my separation from home and the pain and confusion of all that happened in that young, faraway place obliterated memory of the complete love I once knew. Perhaps it was the unwelcome icy hands forcing their way into my bed in the dark hours of early morning that almost destroyed the safety of the night forever. And those glittering bullets, the weapons of war, the tear gas and truncheons of my young, young life catapulted me way beyond the last vestiges of light to a new, bigger, bewildering world thousands and thousands of miles away from my homeland. As I wandered to faraway countries searching for meaning and a purpose in living, a darkness deeper than a moonless night settled tightly about my quivering heart. And then, one day, the darkness finally entered my bloodstream, unleashing a firestorm within me. So many hopes, dreams, imaginings splintered and disintegrated as my body and heart reeled and ricocheted within the walls that towered above me. No light crept into this windowless darkness as I groped for a memory of light to sustain me. And then, in the end, there was the night of pitch-black recollection when from its ancient grave 
arose the memory of a violence from my first months of life. The imagined sanctuary of my earliest moments shattered in an instant and crumbled to a heap of bitter, bereft disbelief around me. The darkness felt absolute. All I know is that I surrendered and relinquished the, the memory of the safety I once felt as I danced in the early morning dew with my pajamas wet up to my knees. I no longer had a refuge, a sanctuary, a sacred reminder that all was well and that everything would be fine too. I forgot the perfect love. I forgot what was possible and entered the dark night all alone. And yet within this barren wasteland a glimmer of light did come. Far off, almost indiscernible, beyond the silhouette of its barren landscape, a soft glow beckoned for an instant, and the great journey home began at last once more. In that glimmering moment, unbeknownst to me, my footfalls inclined once more towards the love I thought was last forever. When the firmament above and about me hung heavy and dark, like a thick black African thunderstorm. A shaft of light and possibility did from time to time reach down and bless me with intimations and promises of a return to that love I'd almost completely forgotten. Now, over 40 years later, I return to that fledgling child and gently gather him to my heart. I feel his tears and cradle his heart in my sad hands. He begins to know that it is safe again to spread his silvery wings and head for the light once more. Together we slowly unshackle the heavy chains about his ankles as he takes flight and looks towards the heaven he long, long ago forgot. Despite the fear and darkness, hand in hand we come to know together that all is not lost, that assuredly we will and can come home to that love which once held us. We have fallen certainly and stumbled often. We armored ourselves and closed up like a clam. But now like one of those glorious moonbeams of long, long ago, like one of those stars beckoning us through the petals of a snowdrop, we will no longer accept a life without love. We have remembered our possibility, and now nothing less than the moon will do. <clears throat> May we sit together, please. you to allow these phrases of loving-kindness to move through your heart and to settle there. Gifting ourselves with 
the blessing of love and kindness and compassion. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May I be free of all suffering, always. Holding ourselves within the great embrace of our kind hearts, may I be happy. May I be peaceful. Keep breathing. May I be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May I be free of anger and fear. May I be liberated. The Buddha said if we looked all over the world, we'd not find anyone more deserving of our love and kindness and tenderness than ourselves. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. Resting in loving kindness here, now, in community, together, today. May I be filled with love, kindness, tenderness, and mercy. May I be filled with compassion, always. May I be free from suffering. Allowing the awareness to rest in the heart center, the emotional center of your body, the middle of the chest. And extending now that feeling of loving kindness to include and embrace and hold all of us here gathered together. May we all be happy. May we be peaceful. May we be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May we remember our love. May we never forget that we're not alone. Holding one another here now together in the embrace of our great love and kindness.
May we be happy, peaceful, filled with love and kindness, compassion, mercy and tenderness, always, always, always. Extending that sense, that feeling of loving-kindness out into the world to include those women and men up on the mountain, our teachers, our family, our land with all its creatures, the sky, <coughs> the earth, the water, May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful. May all beings be filled with love and kindness and compassion. Holding all of life within the embrace of our great kind hearts, may all beings be happy and peaceful, free from suffering. Keep breathing. of the preciousness of life. May we live with a sense of death being at our shoulder and encouraging us into the fullest, most loving life possible for any human being ever. May we be free from suffering, always. Opening the heart to include all people everywhere, all beings, the planet, the sky, the earth, the trees all life everywhere. Holding all who suffer within the embrace of our great kind hearts 
May we all hear our song clearly once more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.